0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. I'm Shirley Welsh, host of Death Cafe Dunedin, where people meet in all sorts of places to drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. In this program, we break the taboo around talking about death and hear firsthand from New Zealanders about their experiences and their perspectives. Last week, I spoke to Mark, who, after having lived in Japan for 20 years, came home to look after his ageing parents. Mark explained why, after his dad's death, he came to realise that New Zealanders of European descent have a lot to learn from Japanese death rituals. This week, Mark describes looking after his mum, her decline with dementia, and his plans for when she dies. So Mark, before your dad died, were you aware that your mum's mental abilities were deteriorating to the extent that they were?
1: Uh, No. I lived in Japan for 20 years, and perhaps, like I said, I came back in 2011, so Maybe since 2000 or so, my father had said to me that he felt Mm -hmm. mum wasn't mentally right. And he described it as uh, Alzheimer's. And I fobbed that off because, one, nobody wants to hear that. And number two, I would come back to New Zealand two or three times a year to see mum and dad and I didn't see anything or feel anything and I'm a reasonably perceptive sort of person it wasn't though I wasn't looking or didn't want to see anything but I didn't notice anything wrong with mum so I thought dad was exaggerating and um, I realised that he was right after mum died because it soon became apparent to me that she was not capable of leading a normally independent life in a safe manner to the extent that I realized she had some years prior and that perhaps that had been compensating for her lack of ability and that's why I never saw anything when I would pop home for a holiday because uh, he was doing it all and covering for her and she was, she could, you know, there's nothing she couldn't do. But then there were some failings in terms of her ability to organize a day for example that made me think something's not right and my dad had been right and you know alzheimer's which is what she's got is uh present long before it becomes symptomatic so uh yeah that explains why i never saw anything but he had he was living with her every day so he saw her decline on a daily basis.
0: So after your dad died, were you able to look after your mum like he had done?
1: Yep. Uh, like I said, she, she wasn't, she wasn't a hazard to herself or to others or to the house. Um, so I could work and come home and she'd be fine. But I would just do things like, you know, I'd take over the cooking and the organizing and the time that we had together. So whenever I was home, I made sure that we spent all that time together and enjoyed it in any way we could. And I tried to cover for her too, because she would do what most people that have early onset dementia do, would would which is to realise there's a the problem, not understand what the problem was. This is maybe trying to remember a name, you know. You know what? Why? Why did you put that ice cream in the in the microwave type of scenario? And you know they would try and make excuses for their behaviour, and I would accept that because you know it's bad enough as it is knowing what the outcome probably is going to be, let alone making it any worse by inflicting guilt on somebody for doing something like that, for example. So you know all of that was fine. You know I I had to. I had to move on with my life too because remember I've just come back from Japan so I had to get a job. Um, I couldn't rely on the money that I had in the bank forever to keep me going and uh, eventually I ended up with the position I've got at the moment which uh, meant that I had to go to Wellington for a training course. This was after about a year of being back in New Zealand Uh, and I asked neighbours to look in on Mum. I arranged meals on wheels. I phoned all the time. I was incredibly worried that being away would uh, put Mum back, but it didn't. She she survived, uh, which I was very grateful for. But I started to become scared when I was at work that she would either start to wander, or do something to herself or the house. So you know, this begins the thinking. For those of us in the position that I've just described myself of what do you do next because with all the good intentions of wanting to keep somebody at home and look after them uh, it's not always possible and that was the dilemma that I was faced with
0: And so what really was the impetus to put her in a rest home?
1: Yeah, she, um, she had uh, a, a medical incident which Necessitated surgery and she came through that but you know if you go into hospital these days you get a team of people to surround you and god knows what the team does but included in that are the social worker team i suppose they bring them in when necessary and these people do some sort of social assessment and then they get the psych team in and they do their assessment and these people assist mum as being at some risk of not being able to be independent to any great extent at home, and these people pushed for her to be put into a rest care facility. And I said uh, that I didn't want to do that. Um, and they said, "Okay, we can continue to." Because the other the other side of that coin is they encourage people to stay at home for as long as possible, which is a money saving option on their part. And I said I was prepared to do that, provided. I could get support at home while I wasn't there. And this, you know, somebody to help clean the house, somebody to pop in and see mum to make sure she was okay. This was on a daily basis. Well, I fought like hell to get any sort of support at all from any service available for myself and or mum. And, but we managed for three more years to live together. And um, then she had another medical event Uh, and the same social worker turned up at hospital and even though mum was still able to walk and talk uh, the social worker um, insisted that my mum go into care and these people have got incredible power and they can overrule any wish of a relative or or a sibling and so it was more or less well if you don't do it then we'll do it on your behalf so I was stuck between a rock and a hard place
0: Did you get any choice in the rest home to which she went?
1: Yep um, You know, this was post-earthquake Christchurch And a lot of places had either closed down or, you know, had to be rebuilt So I was given a list of names of places in Christchurch that could care for mum And I went to some of them And, you know, some some were just awful and just containment by another name and i eventually found one that i believed was the best of what i saw at the time it was a small facility and didn't smell of vomit and death and feces like many of these places do so that was encouraging and even staff that work in these places will tell me that that's a sign of lack of care within the home itself and um So I put Mum into uh, that rest home, which I thought was the best of the bunch at the time, and I I, I was happy with my choice.
0: And how did you get her to to actually move into it?
1: I lied, and uh, because how do you do? You know, how can you do that to somebody who still has their wits about them? So I said I was going on holiday, and that um, you know I bullshitted her about needing some respite care for her own good and that would only be for a couple of weeks and um, well what are we now she went into care in 2014 so we're looking at 6 years now since she's been in various uh, rest homes
0: Financially how did you manage to afford to pay for this rest home care
1: Yeah, well, well that's Yeah, I wonder how many people could tell this story. Um, You've got to remember that if you apply for, if anybody applies for a residential care subsidy for somebody for rest home care, the government doesn't pay, which is about $1,000 a week, wherever you go. The government doesn't pay $1,000 a week. What the government does is take away the superannuation to which the person's entitled anyway, and they top that up. So actually, I'm not too sure what the superannuation payment is, but you know, let's say it's $500 a week, and a rest care cost $1,000 a week. Well, the government top it up with $500 a week, so they're not paying the full thousand. So I applied, and, and and there are you know there are there are limits on how much cash and asset the person requiring the rest home subsidy can have before it's granted. So I think it's about a quarter of a million dollars in cash, and you certainly cannot own your own home. As soon as you own your own home, you're screwed, because the first thing the government says is, well, you sell the house, well, they have to sell the house, and the money from the sale of the house goes into their care, so that's burnt down first. Well, luckily, mum and dad didn't have a home of their own, a home to call their own. They had gifted that legally to myself and my sister over a period of years. So they had no tangible assets. And I believe looking at mum's bank account and all the rest of her finances, that she came in well, well under the cash threshold and should be a for residential care subsidy. To which, <laughs> and I applied and uh, was turned down. And I was turned down on the basis that they believed she had too much money And this was a really sore point with me. Winds dug back for years. They went back 20 or 30 years to try and think of a reason why they could deny my mum a rest home subsidy. My father would be spinning in his grave if he knew what I had to go through. And so eventually they said that she had to burn down another $80,000 of her money before she'd be entitled to a subsidy. And, okay, so, you know, you can't argue with these people. I've got deep pockets, and a lot of time, I just couldn't believe it. There are so many people out there surely rotting the system in any way they can, and, you know, my mum my dad, and so many people out there work hard all their lives, do the right thing, fill in the right forms, never tell a lie, and they get screwed over by their own system. So anyway, i burnt down the money, put in a second application through a, uh, a lawyer that specialised in this sort of thing, And she said, oh, well, cross your fingers because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. And we got a positive result it was approved. And, you know, lawyers are fairly cagey sort of people. They don't give much away. But she said to me in a letter in response to the um, application being granted for residential care subsidy, that was fairly easy to read between the lines of her letter, that this doesn't happen too often and you should be very grateful for it. So uh, she was a surprised as I was to uh, be granted the residential care subsidy, so initially how we paid for it, it was her money, and now the government's paying a contribution towards her care, but you know that's over and above the superannuation to which she's entitled anyway.
0: Does your mum still live at that same rest home that you initially put her into?
1: No, no um, you know the, these rest homes assess ability and you know dementia is graded into different levels and some rest homes are only able to cater for residents up to a certain level and after that the person has to be moved on and this is what happened to mum so they they said that she wasn't able to be cared for in the first rest home satisfactorily they just didn't have the facilities and the and the trained staff to do so so i accepted that um, you've got to remember that most of the time that mum was in the first-trust home, she was a viable, completely viable sort of person, talking, walking, and asking me questions for the first couple of years that she was there about why am I here, when am I going home, when are you going to take me home? And I just had to keep on lying to her about why I couldn't take her home. And then... um, I had to find another place for her on the recommendation of the staff at the first rest home and uh, that's where she was going to stay until uh, they told me that that place was either being closed down or moved into another sort of management and I didn't want to take the risk of uh, uh, being, being in the position of having to find another place in desperation, so I looked around and this is I found a um another facility in Christchurch, which I think is excellent that can offer hospital level care because Mum now can't walk, she has to, you know she requires twenty four hours care, she can't feed herself, she can't toilet herself, like I said, she needs total support, so this is where she is at the moment, so this is the third place that she's been in but um uh, i'm very happy with uh with that facility
0: and what's her mental state now
1: good qu- good question Shirley. um i she well, she can't she can't talk but she, i see her almost every day and i know that um she knows it's me um, she reacts to my voice, and I keep a record of when she says something that I can actually understand as being English rather than garbled language and this is becoming fewer and farther between two but you know uh it's um it's not not pretty, but you know i um I haven't given up on her, and no nobody can tell me or anybody else what's going on inside the head of these people that are no longer able to verbally express themselves. Um, there's something going on, and I think there's more going on than we often give these people credit for, and you sort of hang on to the hope that they still recognise it's you. Uh, she can't really respond to me in any way, but uh, I kind of know... That she knows it's me, and I don't think I'm fooling myself about that.
0: Do you share the care of your mum with your twin sister?
1: No. Why is that? I have a, I have a, uh, I have a twin sister. She lives overseas, uh, and she shows no interest in my mother at all. Or in me, for that matter.
0: No. So this is a job that you bear on your own, yes. together with the rest home. Yes. Have you thought about what you're going to do after your mum dies?
1: Yeah. Um, well, we're talking about a cremation. Dad prepaid hers at the same time that he prepaid his. So. Um, I don't know if there's much left to do after mum dies because most of the people that she would have known are a similar age group. So we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. My, my goal is to uh, leave uh, New Zealand and uh, live overseas. And I think, you know, I've, I've come back to New Zealand. My sister made, made one good point in terms of her life. She's moved on, and she indeed has done that. Her life's been a progression. I don't know what her life is actually like, but you know, the things that she has done seem to me to be very positive for her, even though she seems to forget about the past or where she's come from. But that's a problem she'll have to deal with. Uh, What have I done? Well, I've lived in Japan. That was a positive move. Then I came back here and I've got no regrets about coming back here, but I'm now living in my parents' home, I buried my father, uh, maybe it's time for me to make that break from New Zealand, which I'm not afraid of doing, because I've done it once, going to Japan, I can do it again, and just make a total cut of this country, and that'll be a good thing for me, and that's what I'm hoping.
0: And in our earlier conversation last week you said you expressed regret that your dad had, been, had chosen to be cremated hastily and without much frills or yes. fuss would you do anything different with your mum having had that experience with your dad
1: well uh, you know I've I've, I've I've become very close to my mum uh, since coming back from New Zealand. So, we have a very tight relationship. It's hard, you know, it sounds a bit corny saying that given her given her condition at the moment, but we've suffered through a lot together. So, you know, she'll die. You know, she's 87 now, she's the same, and you know, she's outlived my father by three years. All things being equal, she's quite healthy despite the dementia and I'm hoping it doesn't go on for too long because you know the condition doesn't get better with time it just gets worse so I just hope that uh, when she passes there'll be a cremation I suppose the people that know her will say something but I've got nobody to really celebrate or commiserate her passing with over here. Uh, I kind of kicked to myself coming back from Japan. I've got a few friends. Her her outcome won't be one of sadness for me. She suffered with this miserable disease for so long that I won't be happy when she dies, but I won't be sad either. It'll be good riddance to a horrible outcome for a good person. And... uh, Like I said, it's one of the three things that need to happen before I can feel happy moving on and moving out of this country. So, yeah, I don't think I'll be too upset when mum passes away.
0: Now, you described how, of the belongings of your parents that you were discarding when you cleaned out their house, there was one thing that you hung on to that belonged to your mum, which was a fur coat. Tell tell me a bit about that and what you proposed to do with it.
1: Yeah. well back in the day before people got all precious about animal fur being used for coats, mum got a marmot fur coat and it was beautiful. And she wore it and she looked fantastic and they paid a lot of money for it. I've still got the bill. And uh, I thought, you know, I was going through the stuff, what am I going to do with this fur coat? Well, you can't sell it. You'll probably get a paint bomb through the window if you try to sell it. So I thought, I'll give it to the court theatre in Christchurch. They could use it as, as a prop. Well, I've got so many fur coats, they don't know what to do with them. So that was, that was out. So I thought, oh, you know, what will I do with this thing? I thought, I'll blow it. I've kept the fur coat. It's hanging in the cupboard. When mum dies, she's going to be cremated wearing her fur coat.
0: So where is it now?
1: At home, (laughs) yeah.
0: Mark, thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome, Shirley. You've been brutally frank um, in your conversation, and by being able to talk about death and dying, as you have done, you give other people the licence to do the same thing.
1: I appreciate you saying that, Shirley.
0: You've been listening to The Final Curtain. Ordinary New Zealanders telling their stories about death. Podcasts from this series are available online at oar.org.nz and from the accessmedia.nz app. At Death Cafe Dunedin, the conversation continues. You can join that conversation by listening to other New Zealanders tell their stories about death and, if you want to, by sharing yours. Look for Death Cafe Dunedin on Facebook for updates and meeting times.